Amazon started off as a book store and then they realized that people had the problem of they want this delivered quickly and, and now they're delivering things quickly but they want it even quicker so now they're doing drones. It's like everything solves a problem and then luckily if you're a good enough business you can get creative enough to solve the next level problem. It's, it's honestly just, it's how humans evolve. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Today, we have a repeat guest on the podcast. So many of you have literally talked to me about how helpful and practical and also powerful the last time we had a conversation with Nick Carrier was. And so I wanted to bring him back just to talk about some things that he and I are both equally passionate about. Now, Nick is the founder and owner of an organization called Best You and runs a program called 10-Week Transformation that truly, I have friends that have gone through it, we have Path for Growth customers that have gone through it, helps people go from where they are to a better, more close to the best version of themselves that they could be in their fitness and nutrition over the course of 10 weeks. And he's integrated so many practical personal growth tools and business growth tools into his organization. Nick is someone that is a thinker, he's a learner, he's a practitioner, he's a communicator, and he's also a a leader. His team is growing pretty rapidly and he's a member of the Path for Growth community as well. So we get to see the way that he's leading and growing his organization. So as such, I wanted to start with some rapid fire questions just so you could get to know a little bit about who Nick is and where he's at right now. And then we jump into three to five five of the most important things he's learning right now about life, leadership, and business. Well, Nick, I'm stoked about this. I'd love to start with a few rapid fire questions. I know I didn't tell you I was going to do this beforehand, but I'd love to start that way and just put you on the spot so people can get to know you a little bit, if that sounds good. Bring it on, baby. (laughs) Uh, What book are you currently reading? I am currently reading $100 million offers by Alex Hormozzi. Okay. And what inspired reading that book? Uh, listening to him on a podcast with both Lewis Howes and Ed Milet. Okay, very cool. Any takeaways thus far? Oh man, there's a lot of takeaways thus far. I think that, you know, one of the things that I often hear when I'm getting advice as an entrepreneur is niche down your target market and your and your avatar. And it's something that I've sort of done to certain degrees in the past, but it's something that I really want to hone in on moving forward is really coming up with a niche avatar that I can help really solve their particular issues. I love it. Very cool. Uh, What's your favorite movie? Oh my gosh, my favorite movie. Let's go with something that I was just recently watching. So it might be a little bit biased, but I was recently watching Hacksaw Ridge this past weekend. And I Oh, I've heard so much about that movie, but I haven't seen it. It's good. Yeah. You, oh, you would love it. It's right up your alley. Okay, very cool. I'm going to take that as a compliment. Okay, because you work in the fitness space, what's your favorite exercise? And then what's your least favorite exercise? I would say my favorite exercise is probably squats in general. Actually, no, no, let's, let's, let's let's go to box jumps. Let's go box jumps. I like box jumps. 
Okay, man, when you said squats, I'm like, everyone that joined us at the experience in Nashville is thinking like, yeah, no kidding, your favorite yeah. exercise. <laughs> For those of you that are listening that weren't there, we, we had Nick do a workout with us, which was just absolutely awesome. And I knew it was going to be great because just the energy he brings to what he does, and he's an absolute professional at what he does. But uh, I don't know that people knew how many squats they were signing up for whenever we did it. It, it was yeah. good. Man, we, I, I told you like success would look like challenging people and pushing them out of their comfort zone and dude you crush that <laughs> yeah well the the uh the heat didn't help any everybody uh everybody either so it was great we got to suffer together nothing nothing builds relationship like shared suffering yeah. uh, okay le- least favorite I, i'm really interested in this do you have a least favorite exercise what are your thoughts there i don't know if i have a least favorite exercise because i, I would say i would never do burpees by myself but okay. I will, if somebody is challenging me to do a certain number of burpees, then I'm okay with crushing a number of burpees in a row. So I did an event one time where I was helping to raise money for a, a girl's GoFundMe who has cancer. And we did something after the workout where, what was it? For every $10 somebody donates, I'll do an extra, bur- I'll do one burpee. And we were, I was like, all right, you have three minutes, three, two, one, go. And everybody was pulling out their Venmos and, and Venmoing me money and every, everything. And the, as the timer was going, I was looking at it. I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I ended up having to do 100 burpees in front of everybody. And uh, I definitely dislike burpees, but when you're in front of everybody, you're doing it for a good cause. It was kind of cool. But generally go. speaking, least favorite burpees, that was a long way to answer that. That's a good answer. I like it. Uh, what's something weird that annoys you? I don't know if this is weird or not, but when people press snooze, <laughs> they're alarmed. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't stand it. Okay, and what, you got to go into that a little bit. Why, why can you not stand that? It's just it's setting yourself up for the worst type of day. And mm. I just think it's communicating such a bad message to yourself when you press snooze to start the day off. Yeah, that really is like the even just the first word that you're using to set the tone for your day is the word snooze. Not yeah. great. Like not great. Uh, okay, Brutal. so that that's really interesting to me. I, I'd love to park there for just a second. I know this is rapid fire, but I'm too interested in this to not just stay here for just a little bit. I assume you don't hit snooze. I assume you're a no snooze guy. <laughs> no snooze guy. Okay. Did that come naturally for you? Like, have you ever been in a season where you've hit snooze or is that just kind of how you're wired? I feel like generally speaking, it's how I'm wired. However, I definitely have done it in the past and learned different things to help make sure that I eliminate that habit out of any sort of morning routine that I ever do moving forward. And so like there are strategies that I put forth myself so that instead of 90% of the time never pressing snooze, it was 100% of the time never pressing snooze. And that's something that I try to help people with as well, being somebody who teaches a lot of morning workouts. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I was going to ask is like, I I mean, I guarantee you probably 90% of the people that listen to this podcast, myself being one of them, has has a unhelpful habit of hitting snooze that they might even be as annoyed about it as you are. What would be the one thing that you would give to them to say, do this, think about this, focus on this, that you would say you've seen helps people break that habit? Yeah, well, and I think what you said is really important is that I think most people who do press snooze realize it's not a good habit and are relatively, to a certain degree, frustrated with themselves that that is a habit that they do in the mornings. 
And I would say there's a number of things that I would say, but two things in particular. One is put your phone away from your bed. So many people have it right next to their bedside table and they're wondering why they're pressing snooze. Half the battle is just getting vertical. And so if you can get (laughs) vertical, then that's half of the battle. And to me, really, the second thing is plan out something in your morning that you both look forward to and makes you feel somewhat productive. If you can plan something to do that you can only do if you don't press snooze, that you enjoy and makes you feel productive, then you're going to be more likely to not press snooze so that you can actually get that thing done. Oh, that's really good. That's right. Re- so what's your example of something that you enjoy that's also productive that helps you get out of bed? It's always reading. It's always okay. the, having my thir- at least 30 minutes of reading that I look forward to because I believe that it's going to help me take another step in my business and my relationships, my personal life and my health, whatever it is. Okay. And, and, and it sounds like something has happened in that, that like you're, are you choosing books that you enjoy or are you choosing, gosh darn it, I'm going to find a way to enjoy this book. How do you feel about that? I'm choosing books I enjoy. There are, there have been times where I have found myself in the middle of a book and I, that I don't enjoy. And it's definitely a little bit harder to get myself out of bed on those mornings. But if it's a book that I'm right in the thick of and really enjoying, then I will get out of bed super fast and, and with a lot of eagerness as well. That's really good. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like so often it's like people are like, oh, I don't like to read. It's like maybe you're not reading the right stuff because yeah. reading should be thrilling. And I think it is whenever you're reading the right stuff. For sure. And I do even tell people if what it takes to get you out of the bed is watching 15 minutes of the show that you like, and that will get you to stop pressing snooze, then do that. Do whatever it takes to get your butt out of the bed in the morning. Because once you start forming the habit, then you can start to change the action that comes after it. I love it. Very cool. Uh, What are you most excited about inside your business right now? I think I'm most excited about continuing to find ways to enhance the offering that is the 10-week transformation. Mm. Ever since I created, I have been adding different things to it that both makes it a higher quality product when you are just looking at the different assets that come along with it, but also that makes it 10 times more valuable for the actual consumer itself. And so one of the newest additions that I'm adding in in October is going to be a robust nutrition aspect to the program. And so continually learning about the different pain points that are coming from the 10WT clients and then essentially creating things within the 10-week transformation that helps them solve that problem to a higher degree. So cool. I mean, it's been so cool just as your friend and just as a spectator of your business to watch the transformation of the 10-week transformation. Like I remember when that was like an idea in your head and just seeing like how many people have now gone through it and literally seen their lives, not just their body, literally their lives transform. And then the programs have revolving too. That just, yeah, I, I can see why you're excited because I'm super stoked and I, I'm not even <laughs> in the business. So that's great. Okay, final, final, final rapid fire question. And and it probably doesn't feel like much of a rapid fire question. If this season of your life was a chapter in a book, what would the chapter be titled? That's a good one. How to manage entrepreneurship with a first time girlfriend. 
Oh, there that's we been, go. That's been, it's been it's been a it's been a I've had a girl. I have already discussed this with you, but I've had a girlfriend for now about four months for the first time since high school, which for me was a long time ago now, 10, 10 years ago now that I last had a girlfriend. And obviously, that, so it's kind of like my first girlfriend. And so managing my time and energy that I devote to the business and working wise while still making sure that I dedicate enough time and energy to the girlfriend has been something that has been a fun challenge. <laughs> Dude. Well, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, I, when you record that podcast, I personally would like to listen to that <laughs> podcast <laughs> just because I feel like you and I are just like walking right in line in the same steps right now with regard to that. So dude, that's so exciting. Thank you for sharing that. That's really cool. Very cool. Okay. Well, I think the reason why I wanted to structure this conversation the way that we did is just because you and I have had so many, uh, in many cases, like impromptu conversations where we have kind of a general idea of what we're going to talk about with regard to life or leadership or business. But beyond that general idea, we kind of just enter into the conversation and it's just so thrilling. And I think the reason why that is, is because I know you're a perpetual learner. You're someone that's a practitioner and you're a really good communicator. And there's just certain people that when you talk to, it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm more creative. I learn. This person is thinking at the same pace and at the same mind wave. And and in many times, whenever you and I have a phone call or whenever we get to sit down in person in Nashville, I feel like that's the case. And I just thought to myself, I was like, man, if we could make that happen on a podcast, that would be gold. So that's my goal for today, if that sounds good to you. Let's make it happen, baby. I love it. So what I asked Nick, for those of you listening, to kind of send me ahead of time was just three to five areas that he's learning uh, or excited about with regard to life, leadership, and business right now. And he sent me a few, and Nick, I I think we'll just run through these. And so I want to start with one of the ones that you put in the middle and specifically related to business. You wrote down that your business solves a problem, but it also creates more problems. So solve those problems that you create. So I I would love for you to just unpack what that means to you just to start. Yeah, I remember the first time that I heard that from a guy named Steven Larson, and I was like, mind blown. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. You know, I solved the problem of people. I originally solved the problem of people's fitness routines, and then more and more I'm realizing that I'm helping people nutritionally, but not quite to the degree that I feel like I would like to be able to, and maybe to the degree that is really allowing them to really take that next level in their health and maybe even help their body composition that much more. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm solving this problem with their fitness routine, but then I'm creating this urgency from them to want to be able to eat better. And so I need to be able to solve that problem for them too. And so that's what kind of led me to do a high degree of nutrition education for myself and do a whole bunch of reading through that last six, seven months of my life and develop a framework that I can now coach people through. And that's what I mentioned there at the beginning was I'm adding a robust nutrition component starting in October. And so I think basically what it comes down to is when, whenever you solve a problem for your customer, you need to make sure that you are continuing to have conversations with them and in a state of humility, because I think a lot of people might not want to know that they're not solving additional problems that they could be solving for their customers because 
it it would make them feel not as good about their business. But really, it's just an opportunity to potentially expand your business and, and offer your customers more based off of the different things that you are additionally putting on their plate. Yeah. Oh, man, I, I think that's so good. And, and I believe this is a principle that really is transferable across industries. And and I think like the, the first thing that is not a small thing that you're kind of labeling is solve a problem. And and so many people like, okay, you're not even doing that. So do, like, so, so some people, their businesses highlight a problem that they don't solve. And then they go about creating more problems that they also don't solve. Don't be that business, right? Like yeah. in Nick's case, it's like, he's got to get, their fitness together first and that gives him the ability to do more things and then in some ways I like I just think about the language it's almost like like what you do for people you don't create the, the problem of nutrition for them it's almost like you just you help them get their fitness life in order and it probably more than creates the problem of nutrition it just exposes it and right. now they finally have time and energy and desire to even think about the problem that exists that they probably couldn't do if they didn't have any habits or rhythms or of working out. Does that does that resonate? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know, it's what all big companies do, whether or not people know it. You know, it's like people. Amazon started off as a bookstore, and then they realized that people had the problem of they want this delivered quickly. And, and now they're delivering things quickly, but they want it even quicker. So now they're doing drones. It's like everybody, everything solves a problem. And then you can, luckily, if you're a good enough business, you can get creative enough to solve the next level problem. It's, it's honestly just, it's how humans evolve. You know, I was, I was funny. I was driving down the highway from Chicago this Labor Day weekend. And I was like, it's so crazy how this was just all forest and somebody just bulldoze it all down and created a road. And then when you create the road, you create the problem. Okay, now we need someone to actually pave it. Now we need somebody to build the, you know, the guy, the the side rails. Now we need cars. And then, okay, now the, the car creates a problem. It's just continually solving higher and higher level problems. And so mm -hmm. if you can have those conversations with your customers about what it is that they are now experiencing because you helped solve one problem. And again, it's a higher degree problem, probably, then you can hopefully potentially solve that as well for them. That's right. And I, I think it's essential for the owner of an organization, particularly, especially if they were the founder of the organization, that as the organization scales, that individual makes a commitment to what I would call it to is to to being a perpetual entrepreneur. Because why do entrepreneurs exist? Well, businesses exist to solve problems, right? But if you say, well, I created this business 20 years ago to solve this problem, and then I just hit file save, and we've been running with that strategy for the past 20 years, like eventually, I mean, blockbuster is what I would call that strategy, right? Yeah, it doesn't right. work. And so, I love what you said about like, it, this should be that motivation to say, I'm never going to get so far removed from my customer that I'm going to become distant to what they're actually experiencing and the problems that are actually exposed in their day-to-day -day reality. Yeah, 100%. I think one of the things that I'm experiencing when it comes to practical application of this is once you realize an additional problem is being exposed handle it and solve it very hands-on and do that multiple times and then figure out, okay, 
how can I do this in a way that is not quite as hands-on that then scales to a larger degree? And so I think that that's one of the biggest things that a lot of people might be trying to jump to too quickly is trying to scale too quickly when you really need to get your hands dirty on the problem itself and figure out how to solve it at its highest level. And then once you have done that across time and and repeatedly, then it's like, okay, how can I maybe make this in a way where I don't have to spend hours upon hours of it myself, but we can make it scalable. Oh, that's, oh man, I I love that so much. It was one of the greatest leaders I've ever had. It was, I mean, he's someone that I worked for and uh, it was in an organization where lots of people, their initial attitude towards anyone presenting an idea that might be a good idea, that might be a helpful idea was, okay, but how does that scale? Like that was, that was their like pushback. And this leader was so good because anytime someone would say that as a means of, in some ways, crushing an idea or saying that's not going to work, he would literally say, stop. He said, it does not matter how it scales. He said, our job in this scenario is to do what is right, to use the language we're using, Mm -hmm. is to solve the problem. He said, figure out how to do that in the way that is most right. And then we can start asking the scalability question. But I feel like what you're saying is like, so often people start to solve for scalability before they solve the problem. And that's just so bad. It's like, ask how you can serve people and then figure out if you can scale it, but not, not the reverse. It almost seems like it's selfish to ask, how can we scale before you're actually solving the thing? It is. Well, and I, and if you try to scale too quickly, you're not going to solve the problem at as high of a level as it could be solved. And I've just found from the limited entrepreneurial experience that I've had, that if you solve the problem in the best way possible, you can creatively find a way to scale nine times out of 10. Totally. With the example that Zach and I always use, I, I find myself referring to this example all the time. We've had the president of this organization on our podcast, and he's going to be coming on again here soon. The Mina Group owns Bourbon Steak in Nashville, but it's also one of the largest privately owned restaurant groups in the world. Have you been to Bourbon Steak before? I I have not, no. Oh, dude, we got to go sometime. It's, I mean, it's an insane, it's an insane restaurant experience. Michael Mina is, if you are in a circle of people that know food and know chefs, they know the name Michael Mina, period, mm, right? And, right? And so he is world renowned. And it was a mind blowing experience for me. Whenever I sat in that restaurant one night, I had one of the best food experiences that I've ever had. I had one of the best service experiences that I've ever had. It was all so in point. It was all so beautiful. And and then I realized Michael Mina isn't even here. Michael Mina is across the country right now. And I, I just had a meal that he designed the recipe for, but he had no, like he had no business in today's operation. And that's when I realized exactly what you just said is if you have the patience and the creativity and the belief just about anything, no matter how artistic or talented or gifted you are, just about anything can be scaled and delegated. But it seems like there's something to that of like, you've got to believe that it can be scaled. And sometimes I think ego gets in the way of that. Yeah. Well, and I think just for me, I think sometimes it's not having the ability to think big enough. Like that's for, that's for me sometimes that has limited my thought process around scalability. Cause I, I haven't, I would be the opposite issue. I'm, I never think scalability first. I just think like, how can I solve this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Spoken like a true artist, right? Because I mean, in some ways, like, I, and I'm, I'm the same way, by the way, it's exactly what you said. It took me going to Bourbon Steak and realizing 
what I just shared on here that it's like, yeah. oh my gosh, this experience was created and the guy that it originated from isn't here, that it started to click for me like, oh, like those skill sets that you think only you can do or that you think you're super special, like they can be transferred. And it's, I think for anyone with corporate experience, a lot of times the lie we can have in our head is the minute I transfer something, it loses quality. Mm. And I don't think it has to be that way. I think it might it might not be exactly the same as as you, right? It might not be like right. because you don't want to give people a script, but just because it's not the same doesn't mean it has to lose quality. And I think that's what stands out there to me. Well, that's what you guys are doing with your coaches, right? That's what you guys are doing with your coaches. Oh, totally. This is not yeah. everybody's this, and not everybody's going to be Alex Judd, but you give them kind of a framework to work through, but then you allow them to use their uniqueness and let that bleed through in their own particular way. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well said. I mean, the number of phone calls or voice memos I've now received where someone that is in our community that I don't get to see very regularly reaches out to me and says, oh my gosh, that call with Olivia or that call with Kelly like changed my life. And yeah. and we always tell them, it's like, well, no, the call didn't change your life. You changed your life. But at the same time, what they're saying is like, this conversation spurred action that changed my life. And for like, if you had told Alex of two years ago that that was possible, he would have said, no way. I mean, I had doubts in my head whether or not I could teach and transfer what I did to other people. And what's so cool is, man, when you start doing it, it is possible. But I think operationalization, which I know you spent some time on, is really at the crux of what that is. So what has shifted your mindset around this? Because you said like your natural tendency is to think, okay, I just do the thing. What has shifted your mindset towards scalability? Walk us through that. I think it's more just as of more recently trying to put myself around mentors who have grown bigger businesses to open up my eyes to what's possible and to just ask me those kinds of questions. Because if somebody hadn't asked me the questions of, so how does that scale? I'd been probably like, huh, hadn't thought about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. And so I think it's just other people who have done bigger things before me have presented me with questions that have got me thinking towards that direction. Yeah. I think there's two things around that. We always say like your effort is never going to sustainably exceed your belief. I think that's Mm -hmm. a principle. And so it's like, if you don't think that it's possible, why would you ever invest the work to do it? And a lot of times it's like, I wish I had the ability to believe in things that I just have never seen before. But a lot of times I need some help with some evidence. And the minute I see an owner, uh, an owner of a business that's done it, it's like, okay, I believe this is possible. And it's, and it doesn't mean that I've done it, but it's close enough that I can say, okay, at least it's possible. It's not guaranteed, but it's possible. And and then the, the second thing that stands out associated with this is, and I think you and I have talked about this before, there's a proverb that says, your gift will make room for you. Mm. And I, do, I, don't think, uh, I don't think that was being offered as a business strategy necessarily, but I think it is applicable here in that like, okay, you have a unique ability, Nick to, I mean, create fitness classes and and courses and exercises and routines that not only do do people love in the moment, they follow through on them and they get results. And what's crazy to me is I've literally watched this because I've known some of your customers now. Some of them are my friends. Some of them are our customers as well. And so I've talked with people and it's, I've watched their trust in you in areas that are not fitness go up because you help them with fitness. 
business. Mm. And that's so cool to see because I think it's your gift will make room for you. It's like dial in on the problem that you were uniquely created to solve and don't be surprised when people start asking you about other things. It's, I mean, it's what Dave Ramsey did, right? It's like he was a personal finance guy. Now half the calls that come into the guy's show are like about people's marriage and about people's mental health. And it's like his gift made room for him. And so, but I think that that relates to this idea of solve the problem and that exposes more problems and then be about Mm. the business of solving those problems as well. Mm. That's good. I agree. I agree. That belief and effort thing is is 100% on point. Do you see that in the fitness world? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that you have to get people to see right away is some sort of results. And oftentimes that is not necessarily going to be the number on the scale because that takes a little bit of time. But that's why I'm really big on setting weekly goals and daily goals that they have something to check off. Because most of the time, people just need something to check off that they did. And that's where part of my framework is something called a progress indicator, which is a weekly goal. And if you can check off the weekly goal, it indicates to you that you're making progress to the overall goal. And so you start off by setting the overall goal and therefore the weekly goal becomes rewarding in relation to that bigger, longer goal. Yeah. And I mean, like that parlays into business so closely. I, I heard someone talking about their personal fitness recently and it actually, I didn't, I, I wasn't really focused on the fitness part. I was interested in the, the business corollary to it is they said, I can't really envision a version of myself that's healthy, which was really sad, but it's like, okay, well, if you can't envision that, it's going to take a while. Like it's, that's the thing about fitness that's kind of finicky and kind of tough is you, you don't go do one really hard workout and then get on the scale and automatically see results. Yeah. You do the work and then after you put in the work, like maybe weeks later, you start to see the results, sometimes even months for people, they see the results that they actually want. And so in some ways, there's a degree of faith that's required to say, if I do these things now, those results may not be evident now, but they will come later. And I think that's strategic work on the business. I think so often people struggle to work on their business and not in their business because it's just like getting on the scale. It's like, I did this really hard thing now, but I don't see any of the fruit. I don't see any of the results. I haven't lost any weight. And it's like, yeah, that's because you've got to have the trust and the faith that if you do the right thing now, you're planting seeds that are going to be reaped six months, a year. Sometimes if you're really doing great strategic work, you're not going to see the fruit of that until the full fruit of that until five, 10 years from now. But, but man, that's, I think that's the work that uniquely leaders can do. Yeah, I think this is going to end up being a good segue, and I think, into the next topic. But one of the things that I've read in the Four Disciplines of Execution and that I say a lot to people as well is that actions and results are not always closely related in time and space. You know, everybody wants the action and then get the result, but you have to continue to take the action. And that's where I think, like, I think if you can embrace delayed gratification, I think that might be one of the number one skill sets or things that somebody can do is have the ability to embrace delayed gratification. But then I kind of want to go back to one of the things that you heard the guy say, I can't ever envision a healthy version of myself. And that kind of goes to one of the things I was going to say we want to talk about is the impact that your self-identity has in the actions that you take. Because I'm always continually observing people and trying to identify what 
creates the gap between someone knowing what they should do and then actually doing it. Because there is this almost invisible gap between knowing you should do something and then actually following through with it. And there's a number of different things that attributes to that gap. But I think that how you view yourself and your self-identity is one of those things. And I really started to realize this over the past four months when I hear all of a lot of my clients talking a specific way. I am this kind of person. I've always been this way. I, I, I've, this is just what I do. This is just how I am. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, no, you, you can't have that or you're just always going to continue to do the things that you've always done and therefore get the results that you've always gotten. And so I kind of have identified three different things that I really believe create what your self-identity is. And one, mm-hmm. it's what you see yourself repeatedly doing, which is why I believe that small habits are super, super important because if your identity is formed by what you see yourself repeatedly doing, that you need, then you need to repeatedly do the thing and you can oftentimes only repeatedly do something if it's small enough for you to stay consistent with. And so what you see yourself repeatedly doing is the first thing that can help form your self-identity. The second one is who you tell yourself you are. If you can continually tell yourself, I'm not a morning person. I'm just always someone that presses snooze. I can never be healthy. I'm always overweight. Then of course, you're always going to live there. Some people might say, I can't be an endurance athlete. I'm not an endurance runner. Well, of course, you're never going to be. If you always believe that you're that person, you're always going to live into that identity. And then the third one is that shapes your self-identity is who you tell others that you are. And an example that I had on my podcast about this is a guest that I had on said that he started intentionally telling other people that he was an author and a speaker before he ever was. And he continually told people that. And then he found that other people started asking him, oh, what, like, when's the last speaking gig that you did? Or when's your book coming out? And he was like, oh man, I can be this person. Like Everybody else believes I can and I can believe it too. And so I think that if you can begin to build habits and rhythms and routines that encompass these three different things, your self-identity is shaped by what you see yourself repeatedly doing. Okay, what kind of person do you want to be? Form a small enough habit that you can repeatedly do it. Secondly, who you tell yourself you are. Have a little bit of self, not this crap affirmations where you look at yourself in the mirror and you tell yourself you're pretty and all this kind of crap. Who you tell yourself you are, like set some goals for yourself. I create, I write future truths about myself every single morning, things that I want to be true about myself in the future. And then lastly, who you tell others that you are. Start to tell other people the person that you wish to become and the identity that you want to live into. And not only are they going to help reinforce that belief in yourself, but you're going to further believe in yourself as well. That's helpful. I, I think that that collides with something that we talked about at the, at the Path for Growth experience that we recently did in Nashville. Matthew 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that idea, I had to chew on that for quite a while because there's a lot wrapped in that that is so countercultural. It's not even funny because I think 
we kind of walk around with this predisposition culturally of I'm not enough. And you said it, right? It's like people say, I'm not enough. I can't be healthy. I can't do this. I will never be able to do this. I won't do this. And these are all limiting lies about our identity that we're all plagued by as this dark cloud. And it's like, well, yeah, if you say that, your effort's never going to sustainably exceed your belief. And so if you can't envision yourself anything that's different than that, then you're correct, right? Like you are, you, you will never, you'll never do anything about it because you don't even think something different is possible if you ascribe yourself to that identity. So I would label that mindset as inadequacy. But then I think oftentimes, especially in the space that you and I get to operate in the personal growth space, the business growth space, right? It's this message of total adequacy, where it's, no, you you shut up. You are enough. You're okay just the way you are, right? Like, and, and you are totally squared away. You're totally good. You don't talk to those lies. Like, you're enough. You are enough. And I, I just don't, I don't think that's helpful because I don't think it's entirely real. I don't think it aligns with my experience. There's areas where I'm inadequate. There's areas where I'm a deficit, right? And there's areas where it's like, I have the ability to be totally complacent. And so total adequacy isn't helpful and, and that's what, where I realized, oh, that, that verse, Matthew 5, really helps here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. So blessed, the Greek word for that is makarios. What that means is like a distinctive religious joy. So it's a type of religious joy that is literally observable from the outside. That it's like people see you and they're like, oh my gosh, that person is just abounding with something, right? And, and they say like, there's something that is favoring that person that I want to get on. And that's what it means to be blessed. It's, it's not just an internal state. It is externally observable is what that Greek word means. So blessed are the poor in spirit. It has nothing to do with your finances. Will it affect your finances? Absolutely. But this is talking about poor in spirit. And so, and this actually relates to one of the points you shared too, that we're going to get into later, but it's recognizing how needful you actually are Mm. being totally and completely aware of how bankrupt you are, of how weak you are about how unable in your own power you are about how your willpower is literally nothing. It sucks. You do the things you don't want to do. You engage in bad habits. You hit snooze. You eat junk food, right? And and left to your own devices, you will never not just be that thing. So it's not inadequacy, but it also can't be total adequacy. And so what is correct? Well, I think blessed are the poor in spirit for there's the kingdom of heaven. It's like adequacy in Christ. And, and not everyone that listens to this is a believer, but this has just been the thing that has transformed my life. And I've seen it transform other people's lives is when they realize, okay, it's not me on this personal journey to be enough for myself. It's me reckon, recognizing that Christ in me is enough and his spirit has been imparted into me. And, and therefore I should walk boldly because with God, all things are possible, right? Lots of people quote that verse and they're like, all things are possible. It's like, no, you're missing the like two most important words, that verse with God. But that's what I thought about whenever you were talking about identity is I think if we make it entirely focused on ourselves, we lose track of what I believe our identity actually came from is from our creator. That's awesome. You, I need all the education I get, I can get from, <laughs> from you and, and the, all the different Bible readings and stuff, because I have not done near the research and, and background information on all that and that you have. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's solid. Well, yeah, thank you for saying that. I mean, I mean, and that's one of the things I know you and I both connect on Jordan Peterson, and it's just one of the things that it's crazy. I mean, is that guy Christian? 
like that's probably one of the most Googled things in the world right now. Right? Like, who, who really knows, right? I'm not entirely well, his, sure. His is because his definition of belief is different than a lot of people's definition of belief. You know, he, he believes that belief is more on your actions than it is what you say you believe. And so he will often say, I act as if I believe <laughs> that there, that there is God, that there is a God which and, might be more than most people do. Right. My, most people might say they believe something. It's like, okay, well, why don't you show me in your life where that belief yeah. plays out exactly? So, yeah. but I mean, that's what's inspired me so much around Bible reading and Bible study lately is I'm like, he's just opened my eyes to, yes, like the, I mean, social profundity of it, like truly, I mean, it's it's the most influential document in the world without a shadow of a doubt, but also the incredibly, like incredible utility of it. Like you could read, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and think that that's just an ethereal spiritual thing. It is a spiritual thing, but I think it's a spiritual thing that has massive practical ramifications. Mm, I agree. And I think just to kind of touch on what you said in the beginning as well, and I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this as well, if you tell somebody that you are completely adequate, you're good, you got this, but they don't feel that way, that's not going to be very helpful to them. And so you can find a balance of, you know, you you are, have intrinsic value because you come from God, but that doesn't mean you're all you can be or even close to it right now. And so you better darn take everything that you were given from him and try to live into that, to live into it to the best of your ability. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, a funny aside on this. And then we can move to the, to the next principle that you sent over. But I was once in a, it was a round table conversation. This was, gosh, it was my first job after college. So we were at a retreat and I was with a handful of people at a, like an eight person round table that I worked with. And I just posed the round robin question of like, what's the thing that you're most afraid of? And I posed it in kind of a lighthearted way. And the guy next to me, he's actually someone that we've had on this podcast before. And he's just an incredible mentor and friend of mine. He's in his 60s. He's just a a brilliant business thinker and just a very serious, intense person. And he like paused for a second and, and he went first. And he said, Alex, the thing that I'm most afraid of is that I would get to the end of my life and I would see what I was given and realize that I hadn't done the most that I could with what I was given. And it was like, oh my gosh, like everyone like took a deep breath. And then the guy next to him, uh, his name is Wes and he was a younger guy. He just looked up, he was like, shoot, I was going to say bugs. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but uh, all that to say, I think it connects. It's like, okay, this is an element of stewardship. Like, you are not all you could be. That doesn't mean that you can't be content and joyful today. It just means that you better be excited about stepping into who you could be. And that's something that I, I think both you and I are deeply passionate about for ourselves and for others. That's funny that you say that because I actually say the same thing when people say, ask me, what are you most afraid of? I say that I don't live into my, essentially don't live into my potential. And that I feel like that's kind yeah. of what sparks me on a daily basis is knowing that I am inadequate and like, Gosh darn it, I know I'm not ever going to completely fill in the inadequacy, but I want to get as close as I'm supposed to. Which fear is that fear can be a fear properly positioned can be a powerful motivator. It could also be the thing that crushes you, makes you paranoid and paralyzed, yeah. but can be a, a powerful motivator. Can I actually talk about how that I think that that really transitions actually well, and I don't know if this is the way that you were going, 
to but, the motive one about the why and the yes. anti why. Yep. Okay, yeah, you go go into it. So what you wrote down was, I love that. We're on the same wavelength, man. So the necessity of your why coming from both directions, working towards something and also working away from. So explain what you meant by that. Yeah, I think that everybody has heard an athlete say before, I'm more motivated by not losing than I am by winning. And people mm-hmm. could all envision maybe themselves being chased by a tiger, a lion, a rabid dog, whatever it is, you can envision yourself being chased by something and running as fast or faster than you ever have in your entire life. So everybody knows that running away from something can get you to take action really quickly. And one of the things that we also hear a lot from is Simon Sinek obviously popularized the, what is your why? What is your motivation? What do you want to work towards? And so that's kind of the thing that gets talked about a lot is figure out what it is that you want to work towards, who it is that you want to become and, and begin with the end in mind, start with that and act towards that. But I really think that it is the combination of the two. It's the duality of the two that is really required for both efficient and effective progress and growth. And it's just something that I just really discovered or really thought about more deeply and could put words to over the last couple months because I think I hear more and more stories about people who have become really successful who have come from nothing. And those people had something to work away from. They knew very clearly what poverty looked like. And so it got them to take action at an, ex- at an extreme high level of urgency to get them to where they are. But oftentimes those people get to a certain point And they might not be as fulfilled or they might not be as happy as they want to be because in my eyes, they moved very quickly with a high level of urgency, but maybe not in the direction that they should have. And then then, to use the other end of the spectrum, a lot of people who grew up maybe in a well-to-do family, they have a model for what success should look like and they have an idea of kind of where they want to, maybe where they want to go. But it's very easy for those people to come become complacent because they've always had money in their checking account. And so they have the right direction, but they might not have a high level of urgency. And so it's the duality of ha- having something to work towards, which provides you with proper direction, but also having something to work away from, which provides you with the high level of urgency to take action. So if you can have a high level of urgency to take action in the right direction, that's the power of having something to work towards and work away from. And that's something that I, that's the first step in the process of the 10-week transformation. Before anybody does anything, they have to write out in two to four sentences what I call their big, their BYG, their best you goal. And it's two to four sentences on why you're doing the program, on who you want to become and who you want to work towards, but also what you want to work away from. And I ask people like, envision your bad habits getting the best of you and you're frustrated with yourself at the end of the 10 weeks and like write that out in one to two sentences and write out in one to two sentences on on who you want to become. And so that when reflected upon on a daily basis provides you with urgency in the right direction. Dude. Okay. I have three thoughts on this. The first is that when your marketing budget allows for it, you have got to make a parody video called worst you. 
And, and it's going to be just like, like literally the opposite of everything that best you stands for. I think it could be great marketing for you because oh, I think it sure. would be that contrast. The, oh my, it would be the sum of all fears, right? It would be someone sitting on their couch with potato chips all over them watching the, the seventh season of The Office for the seventh time, <laughs> right? And it's just like, worst you, this is it, right? So so that's first idea. Uh, you don't have to give me royalties, but I will ask for credit on that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so then this idea of your why that you're moving away from, because we talk all the time on this podcast about having a why that you're moving towards, both personally and organizationally. We haven't talked as much about one that you're moving away from. I think it's worth focusing on. As you were talking about this, I think it would be helpful to look at it from both the organizational side of things and then also the the individual side of things. The thing that I thought of whenever you were talking about it is from an institutional level, I, I know you know we've started to do a lot of work and they've just become incredible friends of our organization with the Orthodox Jewish community in mm-hmm. Brooklyn, New York. And I know you know Naftali and you've met some of the other ones because you're now part of the membership as well, uh, Simcha, and then so many of them have become part of our community, which is just so cool. And I just, I've learned so much from that community. It's so cool. But I was talking to them my last time visiting Brooklyn, New York, and they all live, many of them, I should say, live within several blocks in Brooklyn, New York. And Everyone just in that area is Orthodox Jewish, and they all they all dress the same, and they all there's synagogues all over. It's it's really an amazing display of community. But one of the things that they explained to me is that if you are a member of that community and you have an emergency, they have created their own emergency service. They don't really trust New York State as like, oh, we're going to call their ambulance. They're like, who knows when their ambulance is going to show up? Like hmm. we we have our own ambulances. They said if you break down on the side of the road because you're out of gas. Like we have a hotline that you call to get filled up with gas. Uh, you know, if you need a mechanic, we have our own mechanics and it's all provided by the community. They said that everyone is supplying food for each other. They said that there's specific words on the street that if you yell this word, they're like, whoever is accosting you or attacking you or saying bad things to you better run because literally everyone in the community knows there's five words that if they say these things in Yiddish, that person is going down. <laughs> I was like, yeah. what happens? This is <clears throat> wild. But, but I, asked them, I was like, where does that come from? Like, what? literally, why? Why do you do all of this? And what they said it was so profound and so powerful, and I think it's directly connected. They said, something happened whenever this community went through the Holocaust. Mm. And, and they said, when, when we went through the Holocaust, we started not trusting institutions, and we started realizing we need to be able to be independent stubbornly independent, but also uncommonly communal. And they basically said, we're not going back there. And, and, oh my gosh, I get chills talking about it because I just got chills. Oh, isn't that wild? Right. I mean, it's like they have, they have something that they believe is good right now, supporting each other, but that's not the only motivation The the other motivation is exactly what you talked about. It's like, we are never, we are never going to put ourselves in a position where that is possible again. And, and I they think, have a very clear picture of what failure, <laughs> what failure looks like. As clear as that. And so what I take from that is like organizationally, how are we are exposing our teams to the worst that's possible for our business? 
And what's so interesting is there's so many examples. I mean, everyone listens. There's a podcast right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, right? And it's about toxic organizational culture at a specific church. There's, I don't know if you've seen it. There's a show called Super Pumped that talks about just the mm. absolutely awful culture within Uber in the first like five years of Uber's rise to power. And, and that founder is just, I mean, maniacal charisma in some ways. I know there's one about WeWork. It's like, there's all these stories of like these organizations that started good and became uniquely awful. And I think it would be good for some of us to open our team's eyes to like, that is not something that is just reserved to them. That could very easily be us if we allow it to be. And and in some ways, I think that connects to this idea of like knowing your anti-why, right? Like what are we running from? Yeah, no doubt. And Again, I just think it gets you taking action very, very quickly. Yeah. Well, and I think it connects to a Jordan Peterson idea too of like when you recognize the dark parts of yourself that can come forth. If you say, I, I don't understand how anyone could ever do that. Yeah. I don't understand how anyone could just let their body go and just sit on the couch for 10 weeks and never do any physical activity. Well, you're capable of it, so maybe you should understand. <laughs> I know. I think that's 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 something that I've communicated with other people as well. You know, I think he he talks about when he he figured that out when he was spending time in a high security prison, and he tried to experiment on himself in this like one week or two week period, whether or not he could get in the frame of mind of wanting to do terrible things to other people, and he realized that he could, and it scared the living hell out of him. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a, it's a biblical idea as well. It's later in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, uh, do not murder for that those who murder will be liable to judgment. And then he says, but I say to you, whoever is angry will be liable to judgment. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the council and whoever insults his brother will be liable to hellfire. Mm-hmm. And, and what he's saying there is that the seeds of murder or the seed of murder, it's anger. And if you have the ability to get overridden with rage and anger, you have it within you to murder someone. Given the right circumstances and we put water on it and we put sunlight on it and we let people neglect you a little bit and, and we make you lonely and maybe maybe your 401k goes, it's like, all these swirling circumstances, like you have it within you and you better recognize that the seeds of all these things that you look at as terrible, you are totally capable. And and when you reckon with that though, like that can be a beautiful thing because it can be a motivator of where you never want to go. The people that freak me out are the people that don't think they have it in them. No doubt. And I'll kind of just finish, I think this point, which is a big side from what you just said, but the way that I've kind of most recently applied this was to my golf goal, one of the parts of my why of a golf goal that I recently kind of wrapped up was I don't want to be the person who doesn't dedicate time to their hobbies because I'm somebody who could definitely become a workaholic if I didn't set goals like a golf goal. And so I wanted to show myself that even on certain days when I really, quote, should have stayed in and do more best you work, I'm like, no, put it down go to the driving range, take some time off and and play some golf. And so like visualizing workaholic version of Nick that wakes up when he's 30 years old and realizes he hadn't played a round of golf in seven years. I don't want to be that person. Yeah, man. Yes. And it's like you and I spend so much time on our respective podcasts and platforms and with the people that we coach and work with talking about the value of compounding. And it's true. Mm -hmm. 
but it's like we should probably also focus on the danger of compounding. And it, and it's like okay, you compound fifteen hour work days over the course of ten years. You like where that ends? Like, yeah. and and I feel like that's what you're highlighting is it's like this small choice. What we always say with good things is that this small choice isn't isn't just a small choice. It has massive ramifications, but we better play, I mean, we better be unbiased observers of that principle and say, okay, well, these small bad choices that we're making, it's not just one day where we're neglecting our commitments or things like that. It's like, there's compounding to that as well. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, let's let's go to the next one then. And uh, and I think this will be a great way for us to wrap up. It, it actually connects to something that we were talking about with poor in spirit. One of the principles that we teach within poor in spirit and, and within that verse and the way we examine that verse as it applies to business owners is we always say the more you lead, the more you need. And so mm-hmm. if leadership is service, if you don't think leadership is service, you should probably stop listening to this podcast But uh, because I don't think you're going to enjoy it very much because leadership is service. It's, it's pouring out yourself in the best interest of other people. That's what leadership is, right? At least whenever it's done right. And so leadership is service. So you're pouring yourself out. And if you are making a living, pouring yourself out, leading, and you're not aware of the fact that you better be pouring in, then mm. you're going to be really up a creek. And so I was so excited when you sent this because we've actually been doing, we've been talking about this content from Tony Robbins for a long time here on the podcast and also within our Path for Growth community. We have workshops around this stuff. You focus it as the the, the six human needs. We actually teach it and we've reframed it a little bit as the seven human needs, but the principle remains the same. Is like, these are things, regardless of who you are, if you're a human being and certainly if you're a leader, you need them And it would be wise to live in awareness of those needs and to structure your days, your weeks, your months in alignment with them. And so I guess that kind of tees you up for it. But can you explain what stood out about this whenever you learned this framework? And then we can go from there. Yeah, for sure. So I'll just, for people who are unaware of it, I'm going to read out the six human needs. So he talks about the first four are the needs of the personality, which are certainty, uncertainty, significance, and then connection or love. And then the needs of the spirit are growth and contribution. And I'm not sure exactly why, but the first lens through which I looked at these human needs was through the lens of the 10-week transformation, is Mm. how am I fulfilling all six of these needs through the product and service that is the 10-week transformation? And then I'm like, Okay, certainty, people have a pretty good idea of what they're going to expect from the workouts that they're going to come into. And I'm just going to mention one per need. And then uncertainty as well. I I do also sometimes throw in random challenges that they're not expecting. And so it adds some variety to to certain things that they're doing and, and things like that. And then significance, I usually do a pretty good job of celebrating somebody when they do something right or when they do hit their weekly goals. And then really quickly... I meant to pull this out before we actually started. You're fine. You're good. But another thing that I recently added to create more significance and to also reward a behavior that I try to get people to to do repeatedly is preparation. And so at the beginning of every single week with the 10-week transformation, people have to create what I call pills, which are like micro habits that increase the likelihood that they succeed on their weekly goals. And it's a essentially a process of preparation. And whoever prepares the best and communicates most clearly and most specifically what their pills are gets a, a weekly medal 
for their <laughs> best pills award. So if you're just listening, I have a medal holding up right now uh, that has the best G logo on it and everything. And so I, after all 14 people say what, how they prepared to set themselves up for success this week, I put the medal around their neck and hopefully make them feel a little bit of significance. It's kind of a small way, but it's anyways, that's something that I did to create significance within the 10 week transformation for connection and love. I do a pretty good job of making sure that everybody gets to know each other pretty well and gets knows what's going on in their life, knows what they do, knows their family to a certain extent. And then obviously growth is a, I don't even have to really explain that, but everybody feels like they're making progress towards something worthwhile and the 10-week transformation. And contribution is really the hardest thing to figure out how to directly apply in the 10-week transformation itself. I've done a couple of events that have been fundraisers, which people have really gotten around because they feel like they're doing something for a bigger cause. And so I haven't really gotten a very specific way on contribution other than the thing I've thought about is when other people refer somebody else, it makes them feel like they're doing something in, in the service of others when they bring somebody else in the 10-week transformation and their life has changed because of it as well. And so I think that everybody, no matter what product, service, or business that you have, you can think, okay, how am I fulfilling each of the, these six needs or am I not filling these six needs? And if I'm not, which ones am I not? And how can I make sure to a certain degree that I am? Yeah, that's right. And and it's so interesting that you look at it from the consumer perspective. I literally haven't considered it through that lens yet. We have looked at it through the individual perspective, obviously, but then also for how are you structuring your business to be able to meet these needs for your team? Because like if you can help your team or put your team in an environment where these needs are met, your business is going to thrive. And it's amazing how it's like certainty parallels with core values and operationalization, right? Uncertainty pairs over with certain spontaneous events that you do or the way that you set goals as an organization. Significance, your mission statement and the way that it's integrated into the organization. But man, as you were talking about that, you, you kind of parked on contribution. This isn't a scalable example, but it's just an anecdotal example that I've observed in your business. I know for a fact that you, like you've told me, you had someone that was a, a best you customer that was just all about it for so long that literally she approached you and said, is there any way I can work with you and do some stuff for you? And she's like a rock star team member of yours now, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, I just think that that's such a powerful example of like, she got so much from the thing. But the only way she could reach maximal fulfillment was if she then got what she got from Best You and said, I want to make this possible for other people. And, and you had your wits about you to employ her, right? And so it's like, I think people should be paying attention for that is like the best, the best team members are products of the product. And, yeah. and if you can give customers such a powerful experience that they want to work for you, you're, you're helping solve for that contribution need. Yeah, what? Well, appreciate you bringing that example up. But you know, another example from how a customer can directly get that, fulfill that need of contribution is an example of, I think it's Tom's Shoes Company, where every for every pair of shoes that's bought, another pair gets donated to someone in need, right? And so they feel like their dollar is going further than just the shoes that they purchase. So if people can, from a customer standpoint, feel like they're interaction with your organization allows them to contribute to others at a higher level Then I just think that is such a, I mean, all the six needs, but that in particular, I think is just such a recipe for brand loyalty, customer loyalty, and just 
you know, repeat customers as well. Yeah. I mean, we do, you've been on it now. We do a, a conversation twice a week called office hours that one of our coaches leads that we always say it's casual yet intentional conversation around business leadership and life for the people that are part of the path for growth community. And what's crazy to me is the the number of people, first of all, they're, I mean, they own 20, 100, 30, $300 million businesses, some of these guys. It's like, they don't need, first of all, they don't even need to work anymore, right? So we've gone way past that. So we're well into the significance and contribution well now because certainty is solved for. Like, we're good. They've made enough money, right? But then they show up to these above and beyond things like office hours. And sometimes they show up with a question, but other times, literally, people are just showing up and saying like, I just wanted to show up and see if there's anything I could do to provide or give back or help. And And I just, that opened my eyes so much. It's like, People delight in being able to turn around and use what they've learned to serve others. That's why our our fifth core value is strength is for service, right? It's like because yeah. there are areas right now where you are strong, and I believe that you, we, all of us, we have a responsibility to, to take that strength and pour it out in service of others. Is there specific ways that the six needs framework has really shown up for your personal life or there's ways that it's either challenged you or convicted you or encouraged you in your personal life and your personal growth? I think, I think that's a good question. I think the way that I have viewed it through that lens is, you know, one of the things that Tony Robbins talks about is that everybody values the different needs to different degrees, but I also think you value different needs to different degrees in the different areas of your life. And I've talked with you a lot about how I visualize and coach people with six different areas of your life, with health, personal, career, financial, spiritual, and relational. And I think that there are some people who value certainty in maybe their finances to a high degree, and they just always want to make sure they've got plenty of money in their checking account, and they don't really care about taking big risks on investing, but they just want to make sure they have a high level of certainty with their finances. But when it comes to their relationships, maybe they're able to take a little bit of risks. And so I think it's an important thing to realize yourself where you stand with the needs and the degrees to which you need them in the different areas of your life. And I think that it allows you to limit unnecessary stress and anxiety because if you know that you need a whole lot of certainty with your finances, then maybe you shouldn't start start your own company when you're two, what, 22 years old. I feel pretty fortunate that I have a certain level of not needing all that much certainty around finances. You know, if 10 is you need a lot of certainty is one you need uh, no certainty, I'm probably a four or something like that. And so I think knowing what your temperament is and what your need is for the different area of your life allows you to avoid unnecessary stress and anxiety. But also I think it allows you to understand other people to a much higher degree as well. When you see other people through the lens of, okay, where do their needs stand in the different areas of your life? It allows you to give them maybe a little bit better in advice and guidance. So again, if somebody, you know, in the future comes up to me and is finishing up college and they're wondering about entrepreneurship or starting their own company and I'm looking at the validity of it and I know that they're not making a whole lot of money early on, but they feel like they look like they are somebody who needs a whole lot of certainty with their finances. I might not say you should do that. And so I think that 
it allows you to both look at yourself and look at others through that lens and take action accordingly. Yeah. There's a couple of changes that we've made with regard to Tony's framework that I've just feel like more kind of applied to what we teach, which is healthy growth, right? And, and we're deeply focused on that. But then also just kind of theologically, it's how I, I think about these. The, the two that I think are helpful to maybe call attention to on this podcast is so certainty, uncertainty, significance, connection, contribution, and growth, right? Those are them. So we would say that there's a seventh and the seventh is rest, right? The most elite athlete in the world, like you can have all those things running on full cylinders and and there's got to be some rhythm of restoration in there. And so we think that that looks like periods of quarterly restoration, whether that's a vacation or something like that. But then also I think, I think the 10 commandments were real whenever they, they said like establish a Sabbath day and guard it. Right. Because I think one seventh of our week, whenever we reserve that for nothing tied to our influence and income, it's one of the things that I've observed again from the Orthodox Jewish communities. I've seen the fruit of that. It's not even an option for them. They they mm-hmm. do not do any, like they, they will not flip a light switch on Saturday because that is quote unquote work. Now I'm not doing that. Right. But it, it, I I've seen the fruit of it in that community. They, I mean, they do stuff for a long time and they preserve quality and they persist more than any community I've ever seen. And I've got a feeling that one seventh day of rest has something to do with that. But mm-hmm. then the other thing that was a big change for us, uh, and this is the way I've started recently thinking about it for myself is I heard a quote once that was really helpful for me that said that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. And that was really mm. helpful for me because yeah. it's like, okay, like I, I have this hunger for certainty and I, I certainly think we desire certainty. I think we get confused when we start to think that total 100% certainty on anything is possible, right? Yeah. Because I mean, you can be the healthiest person in the world boom, cancer. And it's like, man, you did everything right. And, and it's like, golly, like, how do you explain that? Right? You, you could do everything right financially, boom, unprecedented inflation that makes everything that you saved up your entire career, just go out the window, right? And, and it's like, I think the people that are crushed by that are the people that had a misguided belief in certainty, mm. that they believed that there was such thing as 100%. And I believe that we're called to live a life of faith and our, our only certainty really comes from the fact that we can trust God whenever he said, you will not for, forsake us or leave us or abandon us for, or forget us. But ultimately, we better hold everything else with a loose grip because I think every, everything else is pretty variable. D- does yeah. that make sense why we'd make that change? Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's, I think that last part I really resonate with is I'm somebody who seeks certainty a lot of times and seeks clarity and I've just, I need to be able to touch it and see it and know how it's going to work oftentimes. And I need to let go of that very often because then you take action in in spite of the uncertainty because you realize that certainty is, is never quite going to happen a lot of times. That's right. But I think that there are certain things, the word we use is stability. Mm. And it's like the, and typically it's the thing, the closer things are to you, right? The closer things you are to you, the more you can control. And, oh, right. and so it's like your attitude, your words, your actions, your decisions, how you're responding to things. And that actually connects to the final point that you sent over, uh, which was order and chaos. I always think of certainty, uncertainty, 
overlaying almost perfectly with order and chaos. So I thought it was interesting that you sent that. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I've, I've kind of continued to, I need to do a better job of doing it more frequently when I'm reading and listening to things, but I'm essentially trying to compile all the different dualities that can overlap with order and chaos. And there's so many of different practical applications for it. And I'll just say one really quickly, but one of the things that I talk a lot about is the duality of taking care of the current version of yourself while also taking care of the future version of yourself. Mm. And I talk about it, I initially talk about it from the standpoint of my parents. I feel like my mom is the parent who 85% of her looks after current version of Nick and is there to hug me when when things are down and, and encourage me always. Uh, but my dad is 85% look after the future version of Mick. When he comes over to my house for the first time, he's pointing out, oh, you need to paint this. You need to do something with the roof. And he's, <laughs> he's always looking after future version of Nick. And over the last couple of years, when I was able to put words to that and verbalize it, I've become more and more appreciative of the things that he does and he says that looks after the future version of Nick. And it's, it's a leadership principle, right? I think I've used that a lot when it comes to coaching a lot of my clients early on, I would sometimes be fearful or unwilling to call somebody out or say something to somebody who did not live up to who they really could have lived up to in the moment. And I didn't call them out on that in fear of offending them or them disliking me because of me calling them out. When really, I need to not care about the current version of them in that moment. I need to care about the future version of them and hopefully say it in a way that's not demeaning or anything, but calls them to live into the version of themselves that they could have lived into moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, we consistently train our coaches to challenge people, not by telling them what they should do in given team members situations, but asking the individuals that they're coaching is taking that course of action, operating in that individual's best interest. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that connects so much to literally the name of your company. It's like the, the interests and likes and desires and motivations of the best you, right? And, and yeah. a lot of times, the things that are operating in my best interest look very different than what is my current interest. Right. And, and I think there's a leadership principle to that as well. Is it's like, I mean, it's, you know, Zach, Zach's our COO. The reason why I trust Zach so much is because he has never once shown me that he is willing to appease my current interest at the expense of my best interest. Mm, I like Which, that. As a, dude, a, a, as an employee, like that's a pretty scary thing to do, right? Is he has actively made me disgruntled currently in the interest of my best self. And it's like, that's, I mean, that's invaluable to me. And if that ever invaluable. isn't invaluable to me, I suck as a leader, right? That should always be the type of person that we want to hug and keep around and say like, I want you around because you actually care about things that are bigger than right now. Yeah. And I think one thing to keep in mind that I obviously say to, I'm not perfect at being able to call somebody out when they don't live into who they could be or calling their best interest into mind. There's still times where I hold back my tongue for the sake of trying not to make them mad at me in the moment. And so it's definitely something that I think you mature into and you learn how to navigate that area. But uh, it's definitely something that everybody 
should continually work on and try to improve upon. That's right. Well, and I think it's a wisdom and discernment thing to know, okay, when is it my responsibility to open my mouth? And when is it my responsibility to just keep my mouth shut? And for me, yep. the advice that I often need to hear is like, you should probably keep your mouth shut. You probably don't need to say anything about it. Um, anything else on order and chaos that you wanted to make sure you shared uh, that you're learning right now? The last thing I'll say for me on that is two other words that I kind of overlay on those to a certain degree is focus versus malleability or kind of like persistence versus malleability. Sometimes because I am, I pride myself on being a disciplined person and somebody who follows through with the promises that they make to themselves. I have only a certain degree of accuracy when creating those promises in the first place. And so I need to realize that sometimes if I make myself a promise or I set a goal for myself Along the way, if I realize that that wasn't the right goal and I'm truly being honest with myself that that's not the right goal, I'm not just being a coward, then I need to be able to pivot and and be malleable. And so that, again, is kind of a wisdom and discernment. It's figuring out when you need to be persistent on the path that you're currently on and when you need to have a little bit of humility. You're like, maybe I'm on the wrong path right now and I need to pivot or I need to be malleable in this moment. Yeah. It's also looking through that lens, it's interesting to think of how I've got to think of my given propensity for chaos as a business owner with the filter of the given economic, cultural, and socio-political climate that we're in, right? Because maybe I love chaos and I'm willing to to risk a lot, right? I'm just an all-in type player. Well, that's great if we're in a time of great economic stability and order and it looks like things are going to continue that way. But if I'm a person that has a proclivity for chaos that is also operating in an economy for chaos, it's like, that could be a disaster. And so I think it's helpful to point out for leaders, it's like your responsibility is not just to say, what do I like and what do I want? It's also to analyze what's your responsibility to focus on in this season. Because mm. I, I, I think people that, I'd be interested to know what you think on this. If people tend more towards chaos, I think they have the ability to become a person of more order and and like truly start living that lifestyle and vice versa. If someone is total order and loves safety, certainty, stability, focus, they also have the ability to gain like or to to grow their their chaos tolerance. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I definitely I definitely do. I think that I think it's a question of do you think somebody can build confidence in themselves? Because I think so much of your ability to tolerate chaos is a certain degree of how much confidence do you have in your ability to act in chaos. And so I know personally in the past when I have either intentionally or unintentionally found myself in a state of chaos and then seen myself operate at a high level, both from an efficiency and from a, for lack of better terms, high character way, I have greater faith in myself and the ability that I have to do that moving forward. And so mm-hmm. I think that it's a matter of confidence in your ability to operate in chaos oftentimes. And I'll give a quick example. My, my brother, he hiked, I told you this, he hiked the Appalachian Trail five years ago. And he's somebody who all of us would have been like, you're doing what? Like somebody <laughs> who, who in the past had maybe o- operated out of more certainty 
And then he did that. And then just a few weeks ago, he hiked the Colorado Trail, which he did 491 miles in 18 days and averaged 28 miles a day. But he had the confidence in himself that he had the ability to do that, I think, because largely he had seen himself operate at a high level in the past. And so I think that's a big part of someone's willingness to to wander out into chaos. And it, it's why a bias towards action is always going to be helpful, regardless of climate. It's like yeah. you can be the person that's taking action. Man, that feels like a good place to end it because I think that that's a principle that you live so much in alignment with. Uh, I, I'll tell you, and I know I've told you this before, like I think you wear so many hats. I think you're really strong as a thinker and as a learner, but then also as a practitioner and a communicator. And it's just so cool to see as your community at best you is growing. Um, and then also as your team is growing, how, how you're really playing that leader role really, really strong as well. And so you're someone that I admire. You're someone that I consider a friend. Um, we'll point people towards 10 week transformation towards your podcast and the show notes of this episode, but thanks so much for your time, Nick. Awesome. Alex, right back at you, man. It's been a blast. I'm so grateful to Nick for his passion on these topics and his ability to really communicate what he's learning so that all of us can benefit. We're going to put all of the links to Nick's Instagram, to 10-Week Transformation, and to Best You Podcast in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to go check those out. Hey, if you want to get more content from Path for Growth, I write an email once a week called Worth It Wednesday. I kind of hate email. I really don't enjoy it, and so we said that if we're going to send an email, it better be worth it. It's got to be worth your time time and worth your energy. So every week we send a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. We call it Worth It Wednesday. You can sign up in the show notes of this episode or at pathforgrowth.com. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. 